Good morning, saints. Happy Turkey Day. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for this time, this sacred time set aside during the week when we can, together, as one body, sit at the feet of Jesus. Hear from your word. We ask and pray now, Lord, that you would grant us attentive minds, tender hearts and consciences, and that by your spirit you would convict us in areas of sin and confirm and strengthen us in goodness. Lord, we pray all of this, that Jesus Christ might be glorified in his church in us. Amen. All right, Bible's open to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Christina already read it to us. And without any further ado, let's get right into the logic, the warp, and the woof of Scripture. All right? Are you guys with me today? All right. I think it's just because a little fewer in number. I, I got a hard time feeling you here, but... Um, if I go looking for an amen, you going to give me one? Okay, Whew, good. Okay, the first thing I want you to see, look at verses 1 to 7. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are in a place called uh, Iconium. They've made their way at the end of chapter 13 from Perga to Iconium. In verse 1, it says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way. We're going to pick up there in a moment. So they have moved... Um, You've, you've no doubt checked this out on your Bible map over the last couple of days. They moved north and inland in Asia Minor. That's what's going on. They moved from Perga to Iconium. And it says in verse 1 that they spoke in such a way that, what does it say? Many believed. Well, by now you've seen this repeated pattern throughout the book of Acts. We've come to expect that this would happen. Many believed. It is biblically normal that when you speak the gospel, those who have ears to hear will believe. In fact, it's guaranteed. That those who were chosen from before the foundation of the world, those whom the Father placed his affection on before time, when they hear the gospel, they will respond with faith, repentance, and belief. That's why Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. As an aside, um, if this whole doctrine of election is one that you find challenging, perhaps it's one that you're struggling with, let me just affirm this for you. I believe that in practice, every Christian is born an Arminian and grows into a Calvinist. Let me say that a different way. As you read your Bible, you'll be confronted with passages where it's very clear that God has chosen some for saving and then saves them in Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit causes them to receive and respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. Now, one of the things that people say in opposition to this is, if God chooses some for saving, then why would I bother evangelizing? But that's not how the biblical logic works. In fact, it's the very opposite. If you're honest with yourself, and you do not believe that God has chosen some from before the foundation of the world for saving, then how could you ever hope to evangelize? How could you ever hope that you would ever be persuasive enough to convince some people 
that because a Jewish carpenter died on a cross 2,000 years ago, you are now in right standing with God. The biblically normal pattern that we see played out in the book of Acts is just this. Paul and Barnabas go from Perga to Iconium. They go to the synagogue first. They preach the gospel in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Verse 1. Jesus said, I have many sheep who are not yet of this fold. He then commissioned his apostles and disciples to go out, preach the gospel, so that they would be called out from the world back to the fold of Jesus. It's the gospel, when preached, that calls out those whom the Father has given to the Son. Okay, super deep theological point right off the top. Let's keep moving. Secondly, verse 2. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Well, in the same way that we've come to expect that the preaching of God's word would result in many believing, as we move through Acts, we've also come to expect that the preaching of God's word would be met with opposition. That's right. And the opposition in this case, now in past cases we've seen where opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken the form of um, active and passive persecution, varying degrees, even to the point of stoning of Stephen and death of James. But what shape does opposition to the gospel of Jesus take in this account? Look at it closely. Unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and poisoned their mind against the brothers. Well, here, we see that the opposition to the good news of Jesus Christ being preached is what we would call in today's parlance misinformation and disinformation. Are you familiar with those terms? The unbelieving Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentile believers against the brothers. They took their thoughts and they perverted them and twisted them. They took the facts of the word of God and they perverted them in such a way that it poisoned the minds of these earliest believers, the Gentiles. Perhaps as you're reading through the accounts in Acts, you find it as striking as I do. That it's the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, who were set against the gospel. You find that shocking? These are the Jews who, in fact, were set against the very God of their fathers and of their ancestors, made known in Jesus. you gotta, you got to put yourself into the context of this passage as these Unbelieving Jews are poisoning the minds of the Gentiles with misinformation, trying to lead them astray. These unbelieving Jews would rightly claim to be the descendants of Abraham. They are descendants of those who received the law from Moses, from God, on Mount Sinai. These are 
the guys whose ancestors were delivered from slavery in Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Their ancestors had by this point lived for millennia as God's chosen people. So how did it happen? How did these guys who claimed to be the rightful inheritors of the word of God often find themselves opposing the Lord God in Jesus Christ? How did that happen? Well, in one sense, it happened because God ordained it. (laughs) I'm not going to get into that one. The second sense is the one I want to drill into. You see, friends, these Jews who opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ, they found themselves unwittingly caught in a trap. A trap that highlights for us the danger of group identity and misplaced allegiances. That's what's happening. These Jews who were opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ, these Jews who were opposing Paul and Barnabas, they sought to undermine God's work because they identified with the social group of being Jews and its traditions over the Lord God and his word. What they had done was they established this positive feedback loop and they fed it regularly. One that rewarded and reinforced the beliefs and the behaviors that were favorable to their social group. In so doing, they found themselves opposing the Lord God and his saving work in Jesus Christ. This work of God that Paul and Barnabas were preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, it's a dreadful thing to ever find yourself opposing the Lord God. But we read this account in Acts and we think things like, well, you know, those unbelieving Jews, right? They had wrongly defined themselves. They had taken on a false identity. They had defined themselves by their social structure as Jews instead of remembering the word of God. Surely that could never happen to a Christian man or woman today, right? And yet, friends, it's all too common. Perhaps you, like me, see it all the time. Christian men and women who identify primarily with political groups, social groups, or even with a particular institutional church rather than with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in one sense, you can understand how that would happen. Every force and every tool at the disposal of Satan is being employed right now. And it's trying to slot you into an identity group. Something other than the gospel. 
once you identify with a particular group that's anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will naturally seek the approval and rewards from that group for towing the line. Yeah, I, was, I was reading recently a sociologist who pointed out this fact that's maybe glaringly obvious to you, but it was new to me. He said that we all think that we choose our social groups based on our beliefs. He said, but in fact, it's the opposite. We choose our beliefs based on our social groups. We choose our beliefs and behaviors because whatever social group we identify with, it will positively reinforce beliefs and behaviors that it believes to be important. And so you believe and behave in ways that are affirmed and strengthened by your social group and your identity. If you are on social media, you may be aware that there are algorithms that are working behind the scenes. You are receiving siloed information that cements your existing views through confirmation bias. Do you know what confirmation bias is? It's when you believe something to be true and then every single fact that you observe only serves to reinforce that thing that you think is true. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you are a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, which, by the way, the season's about to start. Praise God. And you're watching the Leafs game, and they're beating up on the Ottawa Senators. It's a close game. And then there is a high-sticking penalty called against your beloved Maple Leafs. And then they show the replay. There's no way that if you're a Leafs fan, you're going to watch the instant replay and say, oh yeah, that was in fact a high-sticking incident. You're going to be presented with evidence, and because of confirmation bias, you're going to view that evidence through a lens that reinforces your cemented belief, because that's what receives the positive feedback from your social group of Toronto Maple Leafs fans. You're going to be like, see, it wasn't a high stick. That's confirmation bias. Because your identity is so rooted in being a Leafs fan that you now see the world through that. That becomes your truth and your reality. Because, you know, truth is subjective, right? More on that in a moment. Well, see, this is the problem back then. The unbelieving Jews so identified culturally as Jewish... that they found themselves unwittingly opposing the God of the scriptures that they had received. This ought to give us pause for thought. You see, you and I live in a world where we are constantly being told that our identity is primarily as a white man, a black woman, a person of color, a liberal, a conservative, a Canadian, you know, fill in the blank. 
That's what you are being told is your identity in your group. And we all too readily slip into those identities, even as Christians. We need to think critically about it. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to convict us where we are slipping into identities that are anything other than in Christ. That's how the Jews went wrong in, I- in Iconium. That's how, that's how it happened. So what is your primary identity? You have to be really, really clear on it. Where do your loyalties lie? Where is your identity rooted? Well, if you're a Christian man or woman, then your greatest loyalty lies to Jesus Christ. Your identity is rooted in this statement, I am for Jesus. I'm not for a political party or a political view. I am for Jesus. My life is hidden in Christ. And then as you move out into the world, you say things like, I am for Jesus. If you are for Jesus, then I am for you. If a value or an idea is in line with the gospel, then I'm in line with it. Now, to be identified as in Christ primarily, to say that is my identity, those are my allegiances, that is my social group, does mean that your identity will overlap with some political and some social views, some more so than others. Imagine a Venn diagram. But it'll never fit perfectly. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, we see a case here in Iconium where the Jews have given themselves over to allegiances that are other than to the Lord God. Their identity is about being culturally Jewish instead of worshiping the Lord God. Where does this hit home for us? Well, I want you to imagine now that living as a Christian man or woman in your day-to-day life today, you, actually, let me make this personal. I love my family and my friends. I love them. But if they step away from the Lord Jesus Christ, then I can no longer stand with them because my allegiances lie with Jesus. You say, okay, R.D., but shouldn't you stand with your family no matter what? And the answer is no. No. My identity is rooted in Christ. My allegiances are to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not primarily a Glenn. I am primarily a new creation in Christ. My allegiances and my loyalties lie with him. See, friends, the Jews in Iconium serve as a warning to us today. 
we have to be very, very clear about our identities and our loyalties. Otherwise, like them, we can find ourselves opposing God. These Jews in Iconium show us that you can be sincere but wrong. And so this is the first point. As Christian men and women, we must reject the allures of identity politics. We must reject any other identity than being in Christ and in his kingdom. Because any identity other than that is idolatrous. Pick that up in a moment. Okay, so verses 1 and 2. Many, a great number believed. Verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up trouble and dissent by poisoning the minds of the new converts. What did Paul and Barnabas do? Look at verse 3. They remained and preached. They were steadfast. I think we could use a healthy dose of steadfastness these days, right? Preach the gospel, come what may. Verses 4 to 6, they catch wind that they're in peril. So they flee Iconium. They go to Lystra and Derby in like Lycaonia. Lycaonia. Verse 7, they continued preaching. So Paul and Barnabas, even in fleeing, continued to preach the gospel because nothing could deter them. Why is that? Well, friends, I think it's because they were so gripped by the conviction of heaven and hell. Paul and Barnabas truly and deeply believed that Jesus Christ was sin's only remedy. And so this weight of truth rested upon them. They're like, how can I not tell people about Jesus? I can't keep this in. Out of love for the Lord and out of love for people, I've got to tell them. So here's what we see emerging out of this text. This identity that is deeply rooted in Christ and in loyalty to the gospel. It results in a dogged determination to please the Lord and to reject all other identities and allegiances. Look at verses 8 to 10. So they've made their way now to Lystra. And in verse 8, we're told that there's a man there who has been crippled. He's been lame from birth. He's sitting on his useless feet, and he hears Paul preaching. Verse 9, Paul looks intently at him. In verse 9, we're also told that Paul, when he looks intently at this man, he recognizes that this crippled man is a man of latent faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? You know, Paul looks at this guy, and he doesn't see him by outer appearance. He looks at this man, and he sees him as a lamb for which the great shepherd died. We ought to pause here and just ask the question, when we encounter other people, how do we see them? Do we see them as an annoyance, as an inconvenience? Do we see them by outer appearance? Or do we look past, like Paul, look intently at the other person? 
See, here's the key to it. Look for faith. When you're looking at another person, look at them looking to see if there is even a glimmer of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you look intently at another person. Because it's that point, whether or not there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that serves as a watershed, a divider. So Paul looks at this guy and he sees that there's faith there. And the crippled man, we're told, looks to Paul and sees a messenger of God. Verse 10. So in a loud voice, Paul says to him, stand up on your feet. And we're told in verse 10 that this guy springs right up and starts walking. Now look, that's no small miracle, right? I'm getting to that stage in life where if I'm like sitting on the couch for maybe more than 10 minutes, it's really creaky and difficult to stand up. And here, this guy, he's been like sitting on his feet for his entire life. And at the word of God spoken by Paul, he just springs up and starts going. That's a remarkable miracle. The crippled man was healed. And this crippled man sees the miracle in his own body and he concludes that Paul was a legitimate messenger of God. He also concludes that this message of the gospel is legitimate and true. This healing account here in chapter 14 It echoes from the healing account back in Acts chapter 3. Do you remember when Peter and James, in the name of Jesus, healed the man at the gate beautiful, who was also crippled from birth? In both of these cases, we see the true purpose of miracles in Acts. We read in the gospel accounts in Luke that Jesus spent his entire life and earthly ministry performing these signs and these miracles. We then come to Acts and we see that the apostles did the same thing as him in his name. And so when these miracles happen, the purpose that they serve is not only for the comfort of the person who's being healed, but they also serve to confirm that these guys who claimed to be apostles were truly men who were sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the account in Acts, miracles establish the authority of the apostles. You see, in the the providence of God, these miracles that happened at the time of of the book of Acts, they were used to set the foundation of apostolic teaching for the entire church. How do you know that what you have in your hand and call the scriptures is trustworthy? You know it because it's apostolic teaching. How do you know that those guys who taught that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were apostles? Well, in Acts, they did the very same miracles that Jesus did. And therefore, we can see that by those miracles, they are confirmed as truly apostles. They're trustworthy ambassadors of Christ. That's why these miracles are happening. But then you look at the world today, right? And even at the church. 
And you say, yeah, not so much anymore. We don't see miracles like this all the time. Well, in one sense, that's because the apostolic witness has already been established. That's one thing. But I would actually say to you that we see miracles all the time. Miracles that are far greater than a man who is lame for life standing up and walking. If we take an allegorical look at this, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to each and every one of us as men and women who have been crippled and lame for life. You're a Christian man or woman here this morning. You can see yourself in this man sitting in Lystra who could not use his feet. Maybe, even as Jonathan prayed, you can remember that moment when the Word of God came to you in the power of the Holy Spirit and gave you something that you had never had before. You, you were crippled from birth, figuratively speaking. You were diseased by sin. You'd been going through life crippled and hampered and unable to walk. But you remember when the Word of God came to you in the power of the Spirit Stand up and walk. You remember that moment when your body sprang to new life and you began to walk in a way that was worthy of the gospel. Or maybe you're here this morning and you say, R.D., I don't really, I don't really know if I'm a Christian yet. But there's something about this account of this crippled man that tugs at my heart. Maybe for the first time ever, the Holy Spirit is granting you eyes to see yourself as you truly are. Crippled and lame by sin. Broken. And that tugging that you feel at your heart is actually God granting you the faith to believe like this man and to be healed. If that's you this morning, hear these words from God. Stand up and walk. Turn to Jesus. Repent. Trust in him. And he will grant you the greatest miraculous healing ever, a new life in Christ. All right, I want to close with verses 11 to 18. Let's look at verses 11 to 13. So the healing happens. Um, the crowds were not as wise and savvy as the crippled man. The crowds got it wrong. They saw the miracles and they ascribed deity to Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse 12. They said Barnabas must be a physical manifestation, a metamorphosis of the god Zeus, the king of gods in their system. They said Paul must be a physical manifestation, a metamorphosis of the god Hermes, because Zeus was the king of gods and Hermes was his messenger and Paul seemed to be the guy that was doing all the talking. <coughs> Verse 13. Even the high priest of Zeus 
began to gather up the oxen and the garlands. And he said, man, this is Zeus and this is Hermes. They just performed a miracle. We're going to provide a sacrifice to these gods. Verse 14, Paul and Barnabas are like, no, 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 guys, stop. And they ripped their clothes. Verse 15, they said, you've mistaken the messenger for the message. We're not gods, we're men just like you. Not only have you mistaken the messenger for the message, but you've missed the one to whom the message points, the Lord God. Verse 15. So they appeal to the town and they tell them, turn from these things. Turn from all these things to the living God. All right, so you read this account and you think, how could these people in Lystra be so foolish, right? Maybe you read this account and you dismiss this as the pious error of primitive people. But some context here might help. Back in 8 AD, there was a poet named Ovid. And Ovid wrote his magnum opus. It was called Metamorphosis. And in Metamorphosis, he writes this epic poem about this moment where the gods Mercury and Jupiter metamorphosize, take human form, are manifest among the people of the city. They then go looking about that city, trying to find anyone that would be hospitable to them. No one is hospitable to them except for a poor husband and wife. The poor husband and wife give to Mercury and Jupiter out of their meager resources. Mercury and Jupiter then, after receiving the, hospita the hospitality of these two poor people, they then bring their wrath to bear on the people of that city, slaughtering everyone except for that husband and wife. And here's why that matters. Because Ovid said that that took place in the city of Lystra, in the very valley where Paul and Barnabas are now preaching the gospel. And so the people of Lystra, they would have thought, they'd have thought, man, we can't make the same mistake twice. If Jupiter and Mercury are going to show up, if Zeus and Hermes are going to show up, we'd better be hospitable to them. We'd better slaughter oxen for them and get out the garlands and roll out the red carpet. Here's the point. When you read this, don't dismiss the people of Lystra as foolish. They were, in fact, being sincere. These people of Lystra were so sincere that they were even willing to worship and to sacrifice to the gods for what they thought was right. The problem, verse 15 is that although they were sincere, they were wrong. In verse 15, Paul says that your whole approach to this thing, right? Zeus, Hermes, those are vain. Those are useless because they're not the living God. And this is where this passage speaks to us today. We live in a world that's marked by relativism. 
And in this world of relativism, sincerity appears to be the only virtue left. The highest virtue in our world today is for you to be true to yourself. That's what relativism is. And so as long as you are sincere, then that's virtuous and that's good, and no one should tell you any different. That's the zeitgeist. That's the spirit of the day. That's the world we live in. In this account of these people from Lystra, the word of God comes up to that and says, no. There is a living God. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything else, no matter how sincere your intent, is dead, vain, and useless idols. You don't get any points for mere sincerity. All right, so you're doing your own gut check right now, and you're thinking, okay, RD, I, I'm a little nervous because I'm sincere. How do I know if my sincerity is pointed in the right direction or the wrong direction? Well, it's very simple. By God's word. See, the people of Lystra, they were sincere, but they were living out of a fairy tale epic narrative of their culture and of their time rather than out of the Word of God. They were living out of a sincere application of their own thoughts and their own intents and their own ideas rather than the Word of God. They were sincere, but they were wrong. We avoid the same pitfall by measuring everything by the word of God. What idols are you serving unwittingly? Even with the best of intent. Well, Paul would say to you this morning the same as he said to them in Lystra. Turn from them to the living God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ and he alone who deserves your fealty. Everything else is useless at best and in fact perilous to your soul. No matter how sincere you are. All right, last couple of verses. Um, you're sitting there thinking, gosh, RD, what an odd sermon for Thanksgiving Day. And in one sense, if you've been around St. George's for any time, you notice that we don't really observe Hallmark holidays. Maybe a passing comment like, Happy Mother's Day, Happy Father's Day, and then we move on to God's Word because we preach the Bible. It's supremely relevant. Yet in verse 17, Paul's call to the people of Lystra to repent, it is actually a Thanksgiving message, isn't it? Look at verse 17. He's talking about the living God and he says, Yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You see, Paul was convinced not only of the reality that there is a heaven to sh uh, a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. 
But Paul's preaching of the gospel recognized what Paul would later say in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. That it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. You know, I often pray for my unsaved friends and family members that God would be so radically good to them that they would have no other choice but to pause and say, wow, God has been good to me. I'm going to return to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. That's what happens when people repent. They have a change of heart to see things in a particular way for the very first time. They look at their life and they realize that all of the good things are not an accumulation of their own good decisions or luck, but that everything that is good in their life is actually a gift from their loving, good God. That's why Paul says to them, he goes, look, God has not abandoned you. God's alive. He's given you rain. He's given you fruitfulness. He's given you goodness. Turn to him so that you might have glad hearts. James chapter 1, verse 7, James says the same thing. He says, look, when you look at your life, every good and perfect gift comes from your Father in heaven. He's unwaveringly good to you. The great tragedy is that so many of us spend much of our life taking that goodness of God for granted. Or worse yet, trading on it, right? Everything that's good in my life is all because of I'm really, really smart and I've made really good decisions. And do you really believe that? Because if you believe that, then you have to accept that everything that's bad in your life is as a result of the bad decisions that you've made and the stupidity. And that's just not how things work. Everything that is good comes from the living God. And so the invitation today on Thanksgiving is to turn from useless idols and return and give thanks to God. Let me just give you a practical assignment. At some point over this Thanksgiving weekend, do a bit of a thankfulness inventory. Think about the things that you're thankful for. Thankful for family, thankful for friends, thankful for food, thankful to be living in Canada, thankful for your church, and just go through the list, right? Those are all things that God has been good to you in granting. And so you thank him. And you thank him especially for being good to you and loving you in Jesus. Because, friends, Jesus is not like a vain idol. He is alive. And true gratitude recognizes that there is nothing you have done to merit or deserve God's saving of you in Jesus. It's all because of his grace and his goodness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, We are reminded that 
You are not an idol. You're not dumb. You're not dead. But in Jesus Christ, you are alive. I pray, God, that you would convict us of areas where we have defined ourselves by anything but being in Christ. Getting caught up in other social groups and structures and believing and behaving in ways other than those of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Pray that you would convict us of those. Bring us back to Christ. And I ask God that on this Thanksgiving Sunday, you would grant us hearts that are truly and deeply grateful. Grateful to you for all the blessings of our life. And especially for your inestimable love in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.